You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David. David, how are you? All snugged up and um, and uh, social distancing at home? Uh, absolutely. I've often been criticised for, how, for having larger than perhaps strictly required house, Giles, but uh, at the moment I'm hearing less complaints. Uh. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. It's um, it's certainly an interesting time um, for everyone and um, and the industry in particular. And uh, we wish all the best to our listeners. Uh, and we understand that um, things are pretty variable out there. I think for for many of the people in our industry and. Um, one of the most interesting things at the moment, uh, David, is the effect on electricity demand and um, electricity prices. Now, we hope this is a short-run thing, but it's fascinating to see what is happening out there. At the moment, um, you can't really be totally sure that demand is going down. Uh, it's about uh, a few percent less across Australia uh, than it was last year for the same week, say, other than in Queensland, where demand actually went up. Uh, but uh, or at least energy consumed and I think that's because there's a lot of heavy business that's still operating that consumes a lot of electricity um, but overall electricity uh, energy is, is cons- at least produced by large-scale utility generators is declining every year pretty much uh, for the last five or six years and it's continuing to decline and that's driven by uh, energy efficiency which dis- which hasn't uh, you know, there's not the sort of new impetus on it that there used to be, but nevertheless, there's still a trend to become more energy efficient uh, in housing and all of those things, as well as appliances. And then, of course, um, uh, uh, we've got all this, the rooftop solar and stuff, which continues to go along at such a such a huge rate. And we haven't got the new energy-intensive um, businesses that used to come along and push demand up. Uh, what uh, I guess it's, will happen at some stage, uh, you know, is that other new forms of electricity consumption as electrification of industry and uh, the automotive industry uh, uh, gets into pace. But, but, but that really hasn't taken off at all in Australia yet, as, as, we, as we all know. One final thing, Giles, before I can pause for breath, is to note that, uh, in fact, prices have fallen quite significantly. Spot prices are down uh, pretty much at half last year's level, and most spot prices last week start average something forty something dollars rather than any other number. That's just a week, but also the futures uh, contracts. If you look at say baseload futures for the year to June twenty twenty one, that price is now down over a third from its peak in most states, uh, and that's uh, that's pretty significant. <laughs> What does this mean then for generators of different type? Is that good for renewables? Um, is that bad for existing coal generators and gas-fired generators? Um, how do lower prices, I mean, it's obviously good for consumers if they're sustained over a long term. What does that mean, though, for the various sources of electricity? Well, basically, lower prices are bad for generators. It's as simple as that. I mean, obviously, if you've got a contract, uh, and these things are always very lagged. We saw that when prices were going up as well as when they're going down. 
because the large gentailers, if you like, uh, uh, or at least large consumers, uh, uh, hedge for two or three years in advance. You know, they might be 100% hedged in, for the uh, 12 months in front and 75% hedged for one year out and, and, and 50% hedged two, two years out. Maybe it's not quite as much hedge. You always leave something to the spot market. But gradually, these higher spot price and so the higher spot prices don't feed through to anything to start with. They just, uh, but they're a signal to to the futures prices, which, as I've said, have started falling themselves. Essentially, the higher, uh, lower prices are, are bad for generators. They're bad for new investment in renewable energy, um, um, and, and because you've got less uh, headroom to compete against. They're even bad for behind the meter. If uh, it was cheap, very cheap to buy your electricity from from the grid, then why put the solar in? You know, eventually. And uh, finally, um, uh, um, the, so so the, 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 and they're bad for um, uh, carbon consumption, carbon emissions because they encourage uh, people to consume more electricity. So you know, I, I never make a lot of friends by saying that I think uh, <laughs> you should be happy with high electricity prices, but uh, that is in some ways if you can afford it and uh, you're not on a pension, blah blah blah. That's uh, and eating the cat food or the dog food is probably better tasting. Uh, that's where we are. <laughs> Well, we want lower prices, but not quite yet. I guess is the uh, is the uh, is the is the summary of that. Look, there's a couple of other interesting things going around. Um, one particular I want to talk about after our interview is on West Australia and a new distributed energy roadmap, which I actually think is incredibly significant, and I think a lot of other people do too. But we'll get to, um, before then. Um, Climate Works has released an updated report um, of its decarbonisation futures. It was a landmark report in 2014, plotted a way for Australia to reach zero emissions. Now they've updated this six years later. Um, and, of course, technology costs have fallen significantly and possibly the urgency of acting has as well. Um, it's an important document. It's an important work. And uh, I caught up over the weekend with Anna Scarbeck, the CEO of ClimateWorks. Anna Scarbeck from ClimateWorks Australia, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you. Hi, Giles. This is a very important piece of work that you've released this past, past weekend, uh, Decarbonisation Futures. It plots a pathway for Australia to reach zero emissions and in some scenarios a lot more quickly than um, some may contemplate or even think is possible. Can you give a brief overview roughly of what you've found and why and how it's actually changed from 2014 when you did a similar version of this report? Yes. We did, uh, in 2014, demonstrate that Australia can achieve emissions reductions to reach net zero by 2050 and stay within the carbon budget for a two degrees uh, climate goal. And this year, we've updated that analysis to reassess whether we still can, have we lost time or have we gained time because of technological progress? And also we've added an additional scenario of a 1.5 degree carbon budget pathway uh, and applied that to Australia's domestic emissions. And what we have found, the answer is yes, we still can. I and guess we can. Sorry, I was, I'm sorry for interrupting. I'm, I, I mean, I guess in, in, in that lost time thing, I guess we've lost time in the fact that we probably haven't been acting quickly enough over the last five years. At the same time, technologies have also probably come down in cost and, and also appeared more quickly than people expected. Yes, and that's been one of the findings of this, actually. 
uh, is that that technological progress has made up for the lost time. And so the two degrees pathway goal is still achievable in Australia. Um, and importantly, so is a 1.5 degrees uh, climate goal, which of course is means moving faster. And one of the key findings of this work is that it involves deploying mature and de demonstrated technologies at a far faster rate than is currently the case, as well as pulling through some of the emerging technologies. But it's not all about the new frontier technologies. A lot of it is about what is already available, but it is not being used in a widespread enough way yet. That's actually an important finding because a lot of the government rhetoric at the moment is that we need new technology solutions and, um, you know, we're sort of focused on technology. But the the point of your study is that most of the technology or the technology that we already have can provide by far the bulk of the, um, the reductions that we need. Yes, and that's very heartening for those of us that are uh, worrying about the climate crisis. Um, but when we say new technologies, there's, there's few definitions of new perhaps. So all of the technologies that we've studied are invented and available, but new can mean new to a market at scale, for example. And so some of these technologies are not yet being deployed at scale. And so the, the key message was deployment is what matters for the bulk of the effort in the next decade. But also there is still some harder to abate sectors, particularly um, some parts of industry and agriculture where further R&D will be helpful so that we can have the breakthroughs that will then allow us to, to do the widespread deployment. And so our report goes through five sectors, buildings, industry, transport, electricity and agriculture, and looks at the technologies in each of those sectors and, and categorises them whether they're mature, or demonstrating, demonstrated or emerging, and looks at what combination of each of those would add up to reducing our emissions in time to stay under those carbon budgets. And we've got mm. scenarios to show that. I'd love to get into those sectors individually, but I'm fascinated by the scenarios that you've actually painted here. You've got a first scenario there, which is a um, the deployment one, and that's all about sort of government push, government encouraging for these technologies to be um, to be deployed, um, demonstrated, and mature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The other one is the innovation one, which is more of a pull by the technologies because they've actually come down in cost far enough, and and, and I guess sort of industry and business is pulling them into the market. Um, What's the difference between those? And there's a third one too, which is the all-in scenario. Um, and that's the one that you describe as being necessary if we're going to reach the 1.5 degree scenario, which for Australia is really quite an ambitious one, isn't it? It's like zero emissions by 2035 or thereabouts. Yes, that's absolutely right. But by ambition, what we're really talking about is pace of deployment. It's actually the same technologies. It's just about using more of them sooner. And I think that's a helpful understanding that it, it doesn't mean a radically different version of the um, activity in each of these five sectors, but it does mean turning the equipment over faster so that we can use the versions of the equipment that don't produce emissions. So you're absolutely right to categorise the, the scenarios between the push and the pull and different policy incentives can either push older technologies out or pull new ones in. And that's what we were trying to highlight was you can reach the same goal in different ways. But if we want to go fast enough for 1.5, we have to do the push and the pull. 
Absolutely. And, and, and just to sort of look at that scale of the transition that you're talking about, um, we can perhaps start and go through the different sectors now and maybe start with electricity. Um, you're talking about a decarbonised grid. Um, well, 75% by 2030, which is far beyond what even um, people are talking about now, and um, and possibly 100% by um, by 2035 in that zero carbon scenario. Um, that's a rapid upscale of what we've um, achieving at the moment, isn't it? Although we've probably come a fair way down the track in the last decade and in, in a bit of a stop-start scenario. We had sort of an investment drought for a couple of years and things have slowed down again because of the uncertainty and um, and other issues. Can we really move at that pace? Yes, we've used CSIRO's electricity modelling for this work. And uh, it's very granular. It models both the east and the west coast grids, uh, 16 transmission zones, um, uh, unit level data for existing thermal and hydro fleet, uh, looks at different sites and resources and six interconnectors between the states and 16 time slices per year, seasonal and so on. So obviously we don't hold ourselves out as the experts in the grid management. We know there are a lot of agencies that are doing that, but we've worked really closely with CSIRO on, on inf how much can technology do, and Australia has uh, great capacity for uh, the improved technology to be able to do more already. And this is, this is one of the fastest moving sectors, right, in terms of cost improvements uh, and performance improvements um, that we've seen in the last decade. So that's what drove this um, analysis was what can the technology do and then what combinations of it get us on the pathway in the most optimised way. So obviously it, your readers will be familiar with um, the concept that when electricity moves first it enables decarbonisation of buildings and transport sectors as well. So the electricity can and must move as quickly as we've identified here to enable the other sectors to also come under the carbon budget. Absolutely, yeah. And um, so let's get move on to transport then. And you're talking about the electrification of transport and you're talking about at least one in two new car sales as being necessary by 2030 for the two degree scenario and possibly three in out of four um, new car sales being electric um, by 2030 in the faster scenario, the 1.5 scenario. Can you just give us a bit more detail about that? Sure. And again, it's just a question of pace of the scale of uptake. It's not that the technology in one scenario would be that different from another. Uh, it's the same electric vehicle uh, engine technology that we've looked at. But what we're trying to show is the maths of if we want to make sure that we are not um, adding more emissions to the atmosphere than it can cope with before tipping the 1.5 degree limit, then we need to turn the vehicle fleets over faster. That's basically what that means. Um, and so, again, we've worked with CSIRO on modelling how quickly could we do this in terms of uh, the energy sources. And, and, and so in transport, we've, we've looked at electric cars, both battery and fuel cell vehicles. We've also looked at electric trucks, batteries and fuel cell. And in the emerging category, uh, there are even electric ferries now operating in the world um, and electric aviation is emerging as a short haul solution. So... Um, the technology of electric vehicles, as you would know, is mature, but its market is not yet. And so this then becomes the question of implementation. What can government and business do together to enable our markets to be able to have three and four cars, new cars in 10 years' time being sold that were being electric? The technology can do it. 
So now we want to turn the implementation shift to the market. What does Australia need to do there? Because we're not a maker of, elect- of vehicles anymore. I mean, to what extent are we going to be a technology taker? And we're really going to be, you know, our transition is going to be dictated by um, what the big manufacturers make. Or what can Australia do to actually fast track that in terms of charging infrastructure, the correct incentives, and there may be adjustments to the way taxes, um, it could be a road tax or fuel excise tax or GST or, or all sorts of different things. You know, to what extent can we accelerate it? Because it seems to me that some acceleration is needed because even if the car manufacturers are making their own choice about the way they're rolling out the vehicles, Australia is getting a tiny fraction of what's actually available elsewhere in the world. Yes, absolutely. It's an acceleration game. And so what we hope our research can do uh, is, is make these benchmarks available that we've provided as the ambition for designing exactly the type of programs that you've talked about. What are the incentives that the um, market will respond best to? And when we look at Australia's place in that market, you've identified that, that the supply chain is broader than the car itself. There is the charging infrastructure. There's also the software for managing the charging itself, having two-way information flow so that grid managers can charge optimally. Um, and charging infrastructure is um, an obvious investment that uh, is ripe for public-private partnerships and can be incentivised through targeted programs, whether it's corporate leadership or government leadership. Similarly, turning fleets over is one of those ordinary course of business activities uh, that is often done the way it was done last time unless there's an incentive to think differently. So we know that the the data now shows that technology could allow us to achieve the climate goals and um, improve the efficiency of our vehicle fleet. So there is a good alignment of of, um, motivation for governments at local, state and federal level to provide incentives for, for large buyers of fleet, that's corporate and government, to be much more proactive about turning the fleet over. And I think one of the findings of this work is that we can now leapfrog to the zero emissions technology rather than move through a range of improvements on the efficiency of, say, fossil fuel engines, and that we must if we're going to have any hope of staying under these carbon budgets. Yes, we can kind of leap over the fax machine, um, as it were. Um, yes, and, and, and you're, you're right in saying that um, moving towards the fleets is possibly the big driver because, uh, one, they've probably, the way they actually purchase vehicles probably makes electric vehicles competitive right now, as I think an earlier study of yours had already identified. And um, um, keen listeners may find an old uh, podcast from the Driven website, the, the, the Driven uh, podcast, um, which... Um, takes a presentation that you made at our EV transition conference last year. Um, and also then that also creates a secondary market for secondhand vehicles because those those fleet vehicles are usually turned over three every three or four years. Yes, and lowers the running costs for the owners. So we find ourselves now publishing this work in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And we know that there will be a substantial economic downturn and there may well be economic stimulus measures uh, being sought after and provided by governments. So anything um, such as this, which enables us to bring forward investment, it's a series of small transactions that will benefit multiple users, but can be done through some large aggregate buyers, uh, as well as the construction work in putting the charging infrastructure in place. 
we actually have an opportunity where we really could uh, turbocharge the readiness of our um, market in a push and a pull sense um, to pull through fleet turnover happening faster and to put the infrastructure in place so that these sales rates can increase this decade. It's interesting, um, just, um, we're just sort of interrupting our sort of walk through the different sectors. I mean, you've mentioned COVID-19 and um, there's a lot of debate and interest about whether this actually sort of accelerates the thinking about how we tackle climate change issues and, and not, or whether it actually adds as an impediment. Um, what's your sort of suggestion about, what, what's your feeling of the way it happens? I mean, I just noticed that, um, you know, one of the shock jocks on Sky News, um, and we shouldn't take them too seriously, apart from the fact that they seem to have a, uh, an, an over an unbalanced um, influence over the uh, over the federal government at the moment, but they were sort of saying, well, if you want to know what a decarbonised economy looks like, then this is what it is now. Everyone's stuck at home, not allowed to go out, can't do anything, and basically living in caves. How do we get across that sort of thinking uh, about it? Because one would like to think it's quite marginal, but um, apparently it's not. What our report shows is that... Um, the solutions exist in every sector for economic activity to continue largely as Australia's economic structure was last year when we completed this work. Uh, and it's about upgrading the equipment so that you can still undertake the activity you were previously doing, but you do it in a way that doesn't emit. Transport's the obvious example. All of this data shows um, that car sales continue, but the type of car that's purchased is what's changed. And so the arrival of the pandemic right now um, has pluses and minuses for climate action. Obviously, an economic downturn makes it harder for everybody to, to, uh, to respond to anything other than the current emergency. And that usually is, is bad news for climate action when something else uh, takes priority. But the good news is that we find ourselves at this moment, a decade on from the last financial crisis, when the technology improvements have been so rapid that they are now cost-effective and readily available off the shelf. And so they are, in fact, shovel-ready and therefore very stimulus-aligned. And so when we've looked at this work through the eyes of publishing it in the midst of the pandemic, what we've realised is that its core conclusions were that to meet the climate goals, we need to accelerate investment in mature and demonstrated technologies and continue to encourage innovation in the, in the next decades, emerging ones. Accelerating investment is exactly what stimulus packages are designed to do. So here we have in this research the shopping list of technologies that can have the double win, that can help stimulate the economy but at the same time transition us to a zero emissions one. So it actually turns out to be a make or break moment because we could, we could actually achieve that 1.5 degree accelerated pace because we're at this moment now where, where, where governments and business will be interested in accelerating in order to kickstart the economy. The break moment is if we don't do that, so much of the funding will have been uh, diverted away from this that it will be very hard to do any form of acceleration on climate goals if the stimulus is not part of the solution. 
So if this is an opportunity then that if the government is really looking to sharpen its pencils and looking for the best bang for its buck and it may have diminished amounts of bucks that it's able to spend, then it's going to be with these sort of technologies because the actual upfront investment will um, offer a cure to the economic woes and the savings over the long term will offer a cure for the long term issues. Absolutely. Hmm. Let's get back to uh, sector by sector um, w w walk through. Um, the building sector, look, this is a sector which has been frustrating to a lot of people in the energy efficiency arena. Um, the solutions have probably been around for quite a while and um, cost effective too. But how have we done on buildings efficiency and what else do we need to do and how quickly? You're absolutely right. When you look at our report, you'll see that in the building sector, all the technologies are categorised as mature and demonstration. Uh, it's not even that we, we didn't even need to rely on the emerging technologies. I mean, we, there are some, but uh, actually what we found is um, electrifying the built environment and improving energy efficiency with, as you would say, well understood technologies to your audience, but they're not widely deployed enough yet. And so that's what we've tried to demonstrate with this research is that the technology is up to the job, but it's time for the consumers to step up to the job. And so we then look at what can business and government do to help the consumption of these technologies. And in the built environment, that's a combination um, of actions, setting standards, uh, providing incentives, uh, adjusting market structure, investing in um, uh, information and new business models. And similarly for businesses, procurement targets, actually just paying attention to this is often what's missing. If everyone has a day job and it's not usually climate solutions at, at the centre of it. So what we were trying to show here is that the technology is right under your nose, um, but it does need to be proactively selected. So those who are um, engaging in, in the built environment, whether it's consumers or designers um, or buyers, um, are, are encouraged to essentially make sure that the technologies on this list, the most efficient zero emissions versions, are the only technologies that are considered at any time there's a financial transaction going on. We, we, we can't afford to have in the next decade an equipment cycle turnover that doesn't leap straight to zero emissions solutions in buildings. Hmm. Let's look at some of those sectors which are in the harder basket, not the too hard basket, but the harder basket, um, industry and agriculture. Industry first. There are signs of changes with, um, within industry now, sort of a, a, a greater um, interest um, for people to lower costs and even change some of their systems, as it were. And I think sort of steel making is one of the big challenges, but there's a whole bunch of different things um, that um, manufacturers traditionally use, particularly sort of fossil fuel gas for heating. Um, and uh, they're now starting to find electrification solutions. Can you walk us through some of the uh, issues and challenges here and opportunities, of course? Yes. The opportunities are that, that as you say, some of those solutions are already mature and in use. Uh, electrification on mine sites, for example, is underway in Australia, replacing diesel trucks with conveyor belts, uh, replacing diesel use with on-farm solar. Um, so we know that it works, it's just not yet um, absolutely widespread. 
Um, similarly, greater use of material substitution, so re metals recycling, plastics recycling, use of timber in the place of steel. We now see that is viable, um, but it's still not yet uh, absolutely widespread across the market. Uh, 3D printing is part of that circular economy movement being more efficient with the input materials. Uh, and our report notes the progress in the 3D printing markets more than doubled in the last five years. Uh, so there are some really exciting uh, technologies coming through. Um, the challenge is uh, helping industry ensure that, that they can adopt those technologies at the times that they are otherwise making investment decisions. And that's where it's about being proactive and having transition support programs available uh, so that um, no moment is missed. And I think that's the race against time that we've identified in this work if we're going to have any hope of achieving the 1.5 degree budget. Let's move on to agriculture and land. Now, this might be the hardest sector. Uh, it's probably the most dependent on sequestration and offsets, I guess. Uh, I guess the difficulties is working out what to do with um, sustainable practices, particularly the meat industry. Um, fertiliser management and other things. But um, what's the challenge here? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it tradition? Is it practices? Is it, like, is it the lack of technology? We actually found some really interesting, um, promising technology improvements, so much so that even the livestock industry, which is often what people think would be impossible to abate, in our 1.5 degree scenario, can reduce its emissions over 80%, down to a fifth. And the combination of solutions for that um, include some emerging technologies where it's a, it really is a bet on whether we can deploy this. So, for example, vaccines for the cattle to reduce the methane that they produce. We know that they are in use already, but we haven't yet got the delivery model that could uh, enable it to be easy for it to be applied to all cattle. And there's some trials around could you use drones for that, for example. And our modelling shows that if that worked, and let's say we've assumed it takes about five years to get that right, the following five years emissions would halve in the Australian agriculture sector. That's 40 megatons of annual emissions could be saved if that um, vaccine delivery method works. What does this sorry, so what does this vaccine do? It essentially uh, changes how much methane the cattle burps when, when through, you know through their digestion system and reduces that. Um, and so that solution is one of those sort of big bet uh, technologies that we've identified that that if it works um, makes a huge difference. So it's one of those ones where you'd really want to make sure you help it work if you know that that, that you want to invest in helping that one. Uh, succeed. The others are more mature, such as precision agriculture, automation, obviously energy efficient equipment on farm. And we did look at product substitutes. So there is the emerging plant-based uh, food movement, um, laboratory grown meat, uh, alongside traditional fertiliser management and precision ag, for example. So what we found was that a combination of all of those uh, can really dramatically reduce agriculture emissions while maintaining agricultural output. Um, it doesn't reduce them completely. And so we also model a lot of carbon forestry, some of which is on farm and combined with farming and other of which is dedicated uh, forestry plantations. 
and that can more than offset the residual emissions. Um, and so you asked what are the challenges uh, in adoption of these technologies. It's actually quite similar to industry and buildings, uh, that it's about a series of small transactions that putting each of these solutions into each farm is a widespread market deployment challenge. So we've, what we've tried to highlight here is that technologies are available. It's the deployment we've got to focus on now. And we know there is evidence in the past when deployment has been successfully stimulated, but it does take support. And those supports are in the range of grants, of um, regulations, of incentives, uh, and communities of practice that can demonstrate and uh, illustrate. So when you sort of sit down and think about all the different things that have happened and are happening around us, we've had a bit of delay in action over the last five or six years. We don't yet have clarity over how the um, you know, 194 countries signed up to the Paris Climate Agreement will actually deliver on their long-term ambition and targets. You look at the technology reductions, you look at the opportunity for deployment and transition, uh, you look at the political environment, and then you look at COVID-19 and the increasing climate catastrophes that we're having, the bushfires just being one example, do you end up being more optimistic? Or where, where, do you, where do you end up when sort of considering this sort of all these sort of conflicting pieces of information coming in? Um, look, that's a good summary there. It is a, a, a whirlwind of, of different inputs. But we have at our, in, at the ClimateWorks team, have intensely immersed ourselves in the solution sets in all of these sectors. And um, when you have a chance to read the report in full, you'll see we've devoted a huge part of the report to what's improved in each of those technologies recently. And we've got examples of how much uh, more usage there is, where, where this is really working well in each of those examples. That gives me optimism that uh, progress is in the right direction. The challenge is how do we make it go faster? And the deeper we immerse ourselves in the climate science, uh, the more worried we get that it is really exponentially important to uh, go fast enough. And fast enough means more than halving emissions in the next 10 years. So I guess what gives me hope is that actually the technology is up for the job. And what this data shows is that costs fall by more than people expected when deployment goes fast. And that's what the past data has always shown. So for me, the message of this report is get the deployment kick-started, um, really accelerating it, and make sure that it's across all of the sectors. And we, what we find is that becomes a, um, a self-improving loop, that the more deployment, the better the cost improvement and the better the performance improvement, and more of the success stories come through, which then drives more deployment. So how do I stay optimistic in a time of great global challenge? For me, this moment in the pandemic actually gives us the moment when huge volumes of capital, cash, government support will be directed from governments into markets. And, you know, the conclusions of our work was that's exactly what was needed. Huge volumes of investment is what brings forward deployment. So I'm optimistic at the moment that this is a moment where we could achieve both because of that 
hopefully, great wall of stimulus investment that's on its way. If we use it well, it could get us onto the path of 1.5 and then I think the technology will do the rest if we can get a sufficient kickstart. And that's the real make or break moment. Well, that's a nice way to end it. And I thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks, Giles. That was Anna Skybeck, the CEO of ClimateWorks. Um, David, um, look, it's interesting. Uh, the main point from ClimateWorks is that, by and large, we can do this with existing technologies. By and large, we can actually do it a lot quicker than most people give us give the technologies credit for. Um, it'll probably cost less in the end. When is this message finally going to sink in with governments of various types? Uh, only slowly, Giles. We already know that. Um, you know, it'll, uh, we've already seen plenty of evidence that uh, uh, if something's not going to happen tomorrow, it'll hit you in the head like like a virus. I mean, if you're not going to necessarily be affected by it, then you don't really care. I mean, uh, I think um, Scott Morrison, you know, has got a lot of uh, credit correctly for as the belated but very successful efforts Australia seems to be making at the moment off to a slow start but I mean that's not everyone but done very well since then and personally I think if Peter Dutton hadn't got the virus uh, we might have started even later I mean it's when when it becomes personal uh, everyone starts to pay attention and if you look at decarbonisation it's just not personal for most people if you if we lived on a Pacific island that was sinking uh, it might be a lot more personal if you live in Florida as I said you can see plenty of evidence but for the Australian government uh, I mean it's just much more complicated frankly uh, than, than than the climate works report would 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 have you believe it shouldn't be more complicated it should be as simple as they say but but the reality is and even when you get into the detail even things as humble as humble as putting more wind and solar into australian electricity where as we know the basic technology but there are still lots and little bits of pieces as as, as the renewable percentage goes up or the variable percentage goes up that we already run into like the transmission problems and and even more the control problems and we don't really have good uh, good ideas yet about how to electrify a lot of heavy industry you know uh, like uh, how do you electrify steel well we've got some progress in 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 hydrogen but it's it's really at the very beginning of that and the costs at the moment are significantly higher and so uh, doing it the conventional way so so it's just not going to happen in a hurry uh, until the mother nature uh, hits us in the face again as it's, she's going to do more and more Absolutely. And look, one of the main problems um, is getting over some of the regulatory issues. It's coming up with a decent plan. Um, and we've actually seen progress of this um, over the weekend. We saw in Western Australia the release of the Distributed Energy Plan. It comes from the um, Energy Transformation Task Force, which was set up by the Labor government, state government in Western Australia last year. It was came out over the weekend, and it's a fascinating document. And I think you quite wittily said to me um, over the thing, I'm sorry to sort of steal your thunder here, David, I'm going to crack your own joke, actually. It shows what, well, no, you tell it, actually. It's like, it's... It's it's a really interesting plan. Um, it's thought about the issues with rooftop solar um, in what is an isolated network. Um, it can create problems, but fascinatingly, they've looked at it and saying, okay, these are the problems we're going to face. Here are the solutions. Let's implement them and let's get on with it right now. So by the end of the year, we're actually going to see 10 more community batteries, which are recommended by Western Power, the network operator, to um, 
stabilize um, certain parts of the grid, store excess solar energy, give a benefit to the local consumers. They're going to have them in by the end of the year. There's going to be new inverter standards um, halfway through the year, which will guarantee that they can respond to any sort of voltage issues and generally communicate better and a whole lot of other initiatives. It's um, it's really quite impressive. Yes, no, I was uh, terribly impressed with her. It's uh, with that report. It's simple uh, to understand, and it's just uh, a clear and, uh, um, as I say, straightforward uh, vision of how to go, uh, how to have a high behind the meter sector as part of your electricity supply, uh, as well as the things you've mentioned about the batteries, which are important. But I was particularly taken by the uh, inverter standards because, as you know, my current bugbear is that we're going to move from a high inertia. Uh, grid to to a low in, to an inertia a grid with no inertia uh, zero zero uh, and uh, zero tora tora um, uh, and uh, 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 you know that has to be done with inverters essentially uh, to, and and rooftop solar and and a few batteries floating around the place and so having better inverter standards and trying to get inverters to communicate with the main grid and on top of that they're going to have a uh, distributed energy um, uh, operator, market operator, uh, sort of a sub subdivision of AEMO, if you like, to 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 manage the whole thing. It's a very forward-looking plan, and uh, the joke I was making, which isn't really a joke, is that it's been done by the West Australian government, which essentially controls the whole thing and doesn't have to worry about the AEMC. And you know, it just is another example of uh, how when you do things without the AEMC. Uh, you get a lot more done, a lot more sensibly, and you get it done a lot faster. Another really good thing about this thing uh, is that it's got a five-year target. What has to be done by 2025? None of this 2050 bullshit, which, you know, uh, just whenever I see 2050, what I see is something that people say, well, we don't have to do anything today, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, look, and we're going to um, find out more about this WA plan um, as we um, hear more about it. And uh, we hope to have one of the main architects onto this podcast um, over the next couple of weeks. So that should be really good. Um, look, another interesting uh, thing I just want to mention before we um, be, before we wrap up is Northern Territory. Um, there's been a huge battle there. The Northern Territory Labor government's got a 50% renewable energy target. No real plan of how to get there, notwithstanding, you know, the grand plans of Mike Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest for a $20 billion solar farm, which may power Singapore if it um, if the numbers all add up. Um, extraordinary battles, both cultural and political within the Territory, um, big arguments over who should build a big battery, whether it should be centralised in the Darwin-Catherine grid, whether individual solar farms should have to build one. And um, finally, they actually came through the other day um, over the weekend and have um, given the go-ahead for a 30 million battery, which will, um, interestingly, um, defray a lot of the costs that they get from having spinning gas reserve there. And the government's estimated that they'll get a payback within five years, which is very similar to the experience that Alinta had in the Pilbara battery. Um, They're on the podcast late last year, had some very um, interesting things to say about that. The big question, though, in the Northern Territory is whether this battery is going to be big enough to actually um, help the solar farms or whether the solar farms will still have to come along with their own equipment. Um, it's it's one to watch because it's a small town, it's a small territory. Um, the 
the the big egos there from whichever side of the energy um, thinking um, sort of clash heads in in bigger ways. And it's quite fascinating to sort of talk to some of the people there, and we, we hope to report much more on that um, in coming times. And um, David, I'm not too sure if that's about it at all. I'm not too sure whether you've got any other observations on the Northern Territory or any other bits of news you want to throw in before we wrap up. No, not, not too much more. I just want to stay with that West Australian report, which which I think is a model for, as you know, uh, AEMO is uh, due to release its own uh, distributed energy report integration with the grid. That was supposed to be done uh, or out already, but it, like a lot of other things, it's been delayed. Uh, and on, in, uh, it's not the only good thing West Australia is doing. If we turn around and look at um, uh, um, locational marginal pricing, this sort of Kogarty bullshit that uh, is probably going to be John Pierce's crowning disaster for, for us. Uh, uh, in West Australia, they're just doing it with a, with a fairly simple capacity uh, credit market where you just get allocated capacity if you're an existing generator uh, and then you guys have to get in like a queue like you do in Texas uh, and, and, and have a discussion about how it's all going to be funded, uh, which is okay when the government's due to help you with the funding uh, because in the end it results in lower consumer prices. So in any case, the point, general point here is that West Australia, uh, with, a, with a more straightforward, uh, top-down approach uh, uh, led by people that actually understand the way the electricity system is going to go and just want to help us get there in the most efficient way, uh, it just does, uh, seems to do a whole lot better than having you know, an administrator around in the form of the AMC making rules for a, for a perfect system that exists only in their own head. But anyway, perhaps I'm uh, being a bit grumpy and not giving them enough credit. And we've probably talked enough for one day because we've got some great podcasts coming forward. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much, David. Uh, thank you to the listeners. Um, thank you, of course, to our sponsors, um, Solaray Energy and Evergen. Um, please do listen to our other podcasts. We've got another episode of Solar Insiders coming this week. We've got another episode of the Driven Podcast with an interview with their new CEO, Jane Hunter. Um, and that's an interesting um, discussion as well. So um, please do leave a review or feedback um, with us or even better on one of your favourite podcast platforms and spread the word about it. And uh, we'll be back again next week, possibly with Green Hydrogen, top of mind. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.